the idea that all of the things that drive the freelancer, task-based work, impermanence, data-driven HR, algorithms allocating work, total responsibility for your training, your development, your healthcare, your retirement. Those are all things the freelancer knows every single day. That's what he or she deals with every single day. Increasingly, every employee is dealing with that. Workforce transformation, a future of work for individuals or owners of their own career. Companies buying work outcomes, not employees on the open market. Welcome to State of Independence, the podcast about how independent work has completely transformed the U.S. economy and how you can take advantage of it. I am your host, Asya Huck, Vice President of Talent Marketing at MBO Partners. And today we will talk with Jeff Wold, founder of Work Market. A serial entrepreneur, Jeff has spent his career thinking about how to better connect workers and organizations using the power of technology. Today, Jeff is also an author, and we'll talk about his most recent book, The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. Well, at a time of what I would say is sort of momentous, you know, work, social, and global change, I think it's very apt that I'm sitting down to speak with you because clearly that thread that runs through your career, and I would love to talk more about your career, is that you've always taken a futurist view of what is to come. And one of the ways that you've uh, laid a stake in the ground is through um, authorship. And you published a book called The End of Jobs. And that book is about the rise of on-demand work and the rise of the Agile Corporation. But before we talk about that book, because I formerly in my former life was a journalist, and I know we've had some chats in the past, I always like to go backward before going forward and understand you as a person and what made you into this person who sits and thinks about the future of work, the future of society, and builds companies and solutions. Wow. All right. We're going deep. We going are. Deep. Let's we do are. it. Um, you know, it's a great question. I will tell you, you know, as I'm on a book tour here, this is not a question that I get a lot. Normally, I just have canned answers. And so I will say this. There are a lot of tenets of what makes me who I am that are resident within the book. I mean, clearly, you know, I spent seven years writing it. And those tenets are things around data and evidence and using probability and expected value to drive decision-making. It's something that I do in my life. It is certainly something that I did in founding the companies that I founded. It wasn't the, oh my gosh, I've got this huge passion about the future of work. It was, there are huge changes going on. There are very limited products in the marketplace. If we build something, we have a high probability of being successful. Now, I could have built something in social media. I could have built something in cat videos. I could have built something in a host of things. But it becomes a question of the size of the market, the competitive landscape, the value chain, what we think we can bring to market and how quickly we can get there and blah, 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 variable, variable, variable. And that yields to me an outcome. And it's the same way I think about the future of work. I wouldn't pretend to have any idea as to how the future of work is going to go. You know, I've got a lot of powers. None of them are time machines or visions into the future. They are data driven. And if we look at the history of work, if we look at the data in the world of work, if we look at how companies actually engage workers, those studies, those bodies of evidence give us a very good look 
as to a high probability series of predictions on the future of work. So I'm pretty data-driven, I guess would be the answer to the question. That's perfect. And you mentioned that you've looked at a series of surveys, and as you know, MBO recently released the 10th year of its state of independence in America, and I know that is mentioned in the book. Best in the business. Best in Thank the business. Thank you. We, we do believe that the persistence with which we've been studying this topic and, and the ability to go deep, you know, we talked about the concept of going deep, is what has allowed us to really glean some very meaningful insights. And one of the areas with it, and there's many, many rich themes within the state of independence, but one of them does sort of look to the future. And I want to bring it up because it links back to a theme I really, really enjoyed in reading The End of Jobs. You said something towards the beginning of the book that said, before the Industrial Revolution, everybody was a freelancer. Pretty much almost everyone, unless you were like a landowner, uh, you were a freelancer. You built your skills on the open market, you identified a niche, and then you went and tried to earn income from that activity, artisan, skill-based, whatever it might be. Today, you're sort of suggesting in the book that we're getting back to a place where that's sort of a relevant concept again. That's a concept that comes up in State of Independence. We predict a future where more and more individuals will be, at least as part of their career, experiencing independent work and building their skills on the open market. Tell me what you believe, not looking backward to the Industrial Revolution, but looking forward um, to the themes of your book, what you believe the worker of the future will need to do to be successful. You know, I will just re-emphasize the state of independence as being one of my favorite things that comes out each year and the rigor that you guys put into the study and the consistency so we can see trends over time, super important. And I think it's one of the most valuable pieces in the study of the on-demand workforce. And it's something certainly that I leaned upon as I put together my thesis, something I leaned upon as I put together work market, my company. And as I think about the idea that we all are freelancers in some way. That is what I've started to embrace. And whether it means I am actually a freelancer, I have 1099 income from a host of companies, I don't have a W-2, that is one thing. And that is an increasing part of the labor force, but it's not a huge part of the labor force. And it's not increasing massively. This idea that, oh my God, 50% of the labor force is going to be on demand by blah date, ridiculous statements, it, it annoys me. But the idea that everybody at some point in their career will have a period as a freelancer, 100% behind it. The idea that all of the demands of the freelancer are permeating full-time work such that everyone is behaving like a freelancer, completely behind that. Those things are very, very powerful, powerful trends that people need to be aware of. Specifically, the idea that all of the things that drive the freelancer, task-based work, impermanence, data-driven HR, algorithms allocating work, total responsibility for your training, your development, your healthcare, your retirement. Those are all things the freelancer knows every single day. That's what he or she deals with every single day. Increasingly, every employee is dealing with that. Every employee is starting to see data-driven HR, algorithms allocating work, task-based work, and personal responsibility. The idea that they really own stuff. So those are powerful trends that we see throughout the history of work, and we are seeing acceleration of that now. So talk about your career as an entrepreneur. You recently ended a significant phase of your career in the future of work. 
And I know there's probably some very interesting things brewing, whether or not you can talk about them yet, about what your future might look like in terms of entrepreneurship or time spent. But if you look to the past, you formed a company, Work Market. You formed it because you saw some very specific data-driven insights and you thought, as an entrepreneur, you could do something about those. Tell us and tell our audience who may or may not be familiar with your career at Work Market what it is that that company did and does today and why it was significant to the design of future of work in the US. So the company Work Market is enterprise software that enables companies to organize, manage, and pay their freelance population. That is what our software did. And there are thousands of companies, millions of freelancers that utilize this software as companies. It helps them to understand who is in their freelance workforce, who's working on what, who's good at what, who signed what legal agreement. It helps them to understand what skills they have by geo, by availability, and to deploy their freelance work efficiently and compliantly. It helps them to manage people through a process and helps them pay them. And then all the tax stuff at the end of the year. As a freelancer, it is where I'm getting a lot of my work. So I'm on my mobile phone and I'm saying, accept this job, don't accept that job. I'll take this job, but for more money, or I could do that job, but not Tuesday, I can do it next week. And so it helps them to organize their work as it's coming from companies. And the area I like to talk about is a very large media company who, you know, before work market had thousands and thousands of freelancers and the legal department and procurement and HR tolerated it because there was no way they could run that part of the business without freelancers. This was a their blogging division and website properties. And I said, fine, you guys can use freelancers, but nobody else can. Nobody else in the company. This is, you know, a Fortune 50 company. And they said to the people using the freelancers, we're okay using freelancers, but no more than 52 per year. I see any guesses as to why 52 per year? No idea. Please. Yeah, no idea. Me. It's completely made up. It's completely made that up. There was no, there's no rhyme or reason for it. There's nothing from a case law nor statutory standpoint that's a 52 per year. No. But the interesting thing is when they would run their audits, they would find out that basically every single day somebody received their 53rd assignment, their 72nd assignment, their 128th assignment, and the rules weren't being followed because nobody had any idea how to track it. There was like a spreadsheet somewhere. And so it freaked them out. And so they said, fine, you guys can do it. But oh my gosh, we're at so much risk here. But nobody else. Work market comes in. We set up our systems. Everybody's using the system within a week. And now it's a metaphysical impossibility for someone to get that 53rd assignment within a one-year period. Can't be done. And so now legal department goes and they run the reports and they see 52, 52, 52, 52, and the number's lower than 52. And they say, wow, okay, now that we know this can happen, they then turned and said, all right, all the departments that you want to use freelancers, as long as you're using them within the guardrails that we can set up within the work market, we're great. Get to it. That is a very real example of technology bending that curve and allowing for that incremental growth that we are seeing in the freelance economy year over year. So fascinating. And I'm going to take you to a personal kind of insight and example. And I think you know this, that many years ago, I worked on a startup that focused on alumni talent and organizing them into talent pools. And the big takeaway I had from the experience of advocating for that business with chief personnel officers, procurement officers, the legal department, the tech department, was that the key driving factor was de-risking. So to me, what I think is a very important 
piece or what I hear from your story is when you can de-risk something, understand it, organize it, and create it in a way that creates comfort inside the global organization, in fact, it's going to grow. So to me, the big opportunities for independent work, and now I'm going to shift and, and sort of go forward, what still needs to be de-risked? What is holding us back from what's next? I would say it is the regulatory environment. And that is a tough nut to crack because there's no one person that can come in, no one company that can come in, no one regulator that can come in, quite frankly, and just say, all right, here are the rules. The reason that companies like Work Market get to exist and a host of other companies get to exist is because nobody really understands what the rules are. And so they need protection. And when I think about the biggest impediments, regulation is number one, two, and three. Now, how you tackle them is still an unknown. If the federal government were to put out a clear set of rules and find a way to make the state departments of labor follow those same rules, which I don't know that they even have a way to do that, then you'd see a huge explosion in the on-demand economy. That's kind of number one, two and three. If I were to dig for another, I would probably say the skills taxonomy and understanding what skills were really available where. And not only in the independent workforce, but in your existing workforce. So companies within their independent workforces actually have a pretty decent idea of the skills taxonomy. And the more they use platforms to manage their work, the more data they build up on the skills of the different people they work with. I haven't seen anything that allows people to do that internally in their workforce, where every single piece of work done by your full-time employees, you are categorizing that type of work and you're seeing who did a good job on what, and therefore you've got a very clear taxonomy of the skills that you have internally at the firm, not only the skills, but their relativity. Right? You know, it's not just one thing, it's not one thing to say, here are all the people that understand tax planning for penguins. It's another to understand he's a level five, she's a level three, and you know Bob's a level one. So understanding their rankings and who is really good at what skill, very few companies have it. If they have that, then it gives them a very clear idea of where there are skills gaps. And the best place to fill a skills gap is in the independent workforce. Well, that is a truly fascinating observation. And I, I think you're really onto something, bringing it down to the skills taxonomy. And many companies are thinking about this. We're thinking about this at MBO, and there's many other fascinating organizations, some of them in the AI space. And so because you've brought this up, I'd love to shift the conversation to a theme that you mentioned in your book as being relevant to the future, which is the role of AI in independent work and in work overall. Do you think solving the skills taxonomy is something that's going to happen with artificial intelligence? Do you think it's about simple data organization and work organization? Does the truth lie somewhere in the middle? What is your perspective on that? So, you know, before you said, does the truth lie somewhere in the middle? I was going to say, yes, that was just going to be my answer to both. So yes, it is both. AI can't work effectively anyway, unless there is an effective data pool and data structuring for it to analyze and start to break down. Now that leads to a question around skills taxonomies and their customization company to company, which is somewhat of a challenge. LinkedIn, I think, really missed on this in terms of creating a very good skills taxonomy. And I appreciate why they didn't do it. Look, they created massive amounts of value and sold for billions and billions of dollars. You know, they didn't do anything wrong, but this was a missed opportunity. And maybe it's one that they will embrace over time. 
if AI is going to do it, an AI's ability to understand who has what skills is certainly more powerful than anything else we have. That's great, but unless the data is organized, it, it, it just won't work. Do you think that we've cracked in any way matching skills to work? You've, you've done it at work market, but do you think that there's more that needs to happen for us to truly do that in a way that creates that scalable change? There is so much more that needs to happen. So do I think work market's algorithms for allocating work, the incremental work assignment to the next worker are good? Absolutely. Are there inherent biases in it? Absolutely. Are there missing data sets? Of course. I mean, the most powerful example is, of course, the Julie Brown that just comes into the system. We don't know anything about her. How am I supposed to match work with her? She can tell us a bunch of things about her, but it's difficult to get the veracity of that. So until I get the veracity of what she really did, which means I need data from a whole host of places that aren't going to give it to me, then I don't know what Julie Brown did. And how do I, how does the algorithm understand that she's actually the best in the world at vinyl installations? I, I have no way of knowing that she could write it, right? And now I'm relying on certifications and licenses and a host of other things that I might have some access to, but what I don't have access to are all the work, all the assignments that maybe she did at her last company that did vinyl installations, and now she's going to go do it as a freelancer. That is a huge miss, right? The incremental person coming onto the platform and what data I have on them. Because once Julie's been on the platform for a while and she's done 10 assignments as vinyl installation, and I can see how quickly she did them, and I can see how, you know, reworks that were asked, I can see her communication skills, I can see the ratings and her professionalism, the quality of her work, and blah, 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 blah. Now I know. But how do I get to that? So that to me has always been the biggest challenge. What do we do with that incremental user as they come on? And that's just one of many, many challenges that have to be overcome in order to have really great matching algorithms. And I would argue that the matching algorithms are probably going to get optimized first inside a company because they have a lot more data on that employee if they choose to harness it, if they choose to structure it to drive those algorithms than we will have in the independent workforce. Makes a lot of sense. So the story you just described or the example you just described of Julie has to do with, let's call it like everyday work, work that you would think of as work that you can rate and uh, provide feedback on. Now, turn for a moment to the high skill professional. Mm -hmm. Within State of Independence, there's nearly 8 million of these sort of 100,000 plus workers that are... Um, approaching career quite differently. And, and I would love to talk to you later about demand and supply because you have some fascinating insights there in your book. But specifically speaking to preparing them for the future, that individual may have discomfort with, with ratings, with passing those ratings on to another organization, with sort of seeing themselves as, a, as an asset that's like an Uber driver. You're going to get a review right? Especially if it's not two-sided, like you don't get to review the company in return. How do you think that part of the population is going to play into this um, change and, and visioning of the future for HR departments? Well, first is they need to get over it, right? Like these are the things that they need to embrace, that all workers need to embrace, that there is data-driven HR. And that data transparency, if you're really good, will show. If you're really hardworking, it'll show. And the people that fear data transparency are the people that are good at what they do and that don't work hard. Like, I, I, there's no other answer to that. 
they will have to get over it because this is where the world is going. And if they want to kick and scream, they can kick and scream their way to not getting work. I've, I've let very little sympathy for it. In terms of how those skills play out, I don't know that those skills are more difficult to assess. I think we have fewer data points, right? The Uber driver may perform 30 trips in a day. That's, that's a lot of data. The high-end lawyer may do two cases or two big projects a quarter. And so the data itself becomes more difficult because it sometimes becomes difficult to disaggregate all work. And what gets highlighted for me on this point, Asi, is that labor is really complicated. And everybody that tries to make all these very simple statements of, oh, we're all going to be like Uber drivers. No. Oh, all work's going to be task-based. No. Are these trends, are they powerful forces that everyone should be aware of? Of course. Does it mean it applies to every type of work? Of course not. Work is so complex, it is so vast, it takes into account so much that any simple analogy, any simple statement belays the mass complexity that goes into this. And so is it entirely possible that the high-end independent professional ends up in a very different context? Sure. Does that mean that professional is going to be immune from the movements of personal responsibility, of data-driven HR, of algorithms allocating work, of even task-based work? Hard no. They are not immune to it. But they may not be as impacted as a person whose job is very easily broken down into a net aggregated task, very easily disaggregated in its work components so it can be done by an employee or a freelancer or a remote work, blah, 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 blah. Of course, those types of work are going to be more impacted. And it's important for us as we think about the future of work to be mindful of the sub-aggregated points on all this. Makes a lot of sense. So one of the key themes of your book that I really have been thinking about it again and again since I read those those sections is the power dynamic historically, and it, it will change over time, between those that give work out, companies, enterprises, and those that perform work, mm-hmm. so providers and, and uh, suppliers. Where do you think that dynamic sits today? And what, if anything, will change, change it? Well, let me just uh, now kind of contradict myself because there are some simple analogies to be made here. And one is with the simple supply and demand. Yes, labor is super complicated, but when we bring it all the way up to its top level, it is supply and demand in a lot of different geographies, a lot of different industries, and supply and demand is driven by a host of factors. But there historically has always been more workers than there is work. That's been the nature of supply and demand. It has allowed those with work, companies, to exert power over those that perform work, workers. And in times of technological leaps, industrialization, mechanization, computerization, electrification, robots and AI, the power of companies so massively grows that they're able to exert ever more power over workers. They're able to take ever more of the economic pie. And here's the thing about another simplistic statement about the world of work is that when things get too out of whack, it doesn't last. You know, we need to have stability in this world. And so counterbalancing forces rise. And for workers, those are traditionally unions, the social safety net, and the regulatory framework. And so there is very little doubt in my mind that unions will continue their rise, not in their traditional form, because in their traditional form, they've been falling tremendously since the end of the Second World War. 
And I have no doubt that the regulatory state will rise. I have no doubt that the social safety net will evolve in some way. And so those are things that are very, very powerful. But it's important to understand, right, when we look at this throughout history, there are periods where the skill sets are so unique and so advanced that the supply and demand balance massively changes and workers have more power. You can think right now about people with blockchain expertise or cybersecurity expertise or a host of other deep tech AI and robotic expertise and things like that. Those workers are in such demand because the education system hasn't caught up yet. And so there's always, you see throughout history, these brief periods where workers have more power. And you know what they want to do, Asia, when they have more power? They want to work independently. They say, no, 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 I will work with you, but as a, as a consultant, as a freelancer, I'll do a project for you for three months, and then I'll take some time at the beach, so I'll work for you for four months, and I'll work for three or four companies for a little bit, because they have the power. So when companies have the power, they kind of abuse it, and we can talk about the history of the Battle of Ludlow, uh, the Ludlow Massacre, the Battle of Blair Mountain, the Pullman Strike, the Triangle Factory Fire, and when workers have that power, they tend to go independent. Really amazing. And I will tell you that one of the things I was thinking about this morning as I was reading your chapter about demand and supply and the power structures and unions is the fact that Google, I don't know if you've read this, Mm -hmm. had a recent move. In fact, I think within the last week Mm -hmm. where a set of employees formed what I think of as a modern union, right? So they formed a union that had to do with communications and and sort of a digital union and they and they've kind of stated mm-hmm. that they are different than a traditional union but that they've organized in order to address what they think of as significant imbalances in their power within that structure curious if you have anything any observations on what's happening there if you've even had a chance to dig into it so many observations Look, the, the Google example is interesting. I view it as one example of a bigger trend. And this is a trend that I touched on a second ago with my statement that union power itself, unions represented 30% of American workers post-World War II. They represent about 7% of workers now. But you're seeing an evolution of the union movement. The Google example is a very good example of that. Right? These are workers uniting in a common cause. That common cause isn't your people dying here because you're putting us to work in such terrible working conditions. They're not, hey, we're not making a living wage. You need to do something about that. They are, we want a bigger voice. We want to see things happening at this company. We want to have free expression and this and that. And I certainly applaud their efforts. And that's the wonderful thing about the American experiment is that we get to try all these different things. Will the Google example be one that permeates a lot of other tech companies? Ask me in five years. I'll I'll know. I don't know. Maybe. Here's, here's what I find super interesting and I think is a much more widespread example. And again, who knows if it'll continue, and that's the Fight for 15. So the Fight for 15 started as a union-led movement by the SEIU, largest union in the United States, out of Seattle. And they said, look, we need a $15 minimum wage for our workers. We, this, it's unlivable at $7 an hour, $8 an hour. But it morphed that Fight for 15 movement into a nationwide movement by grassroots activists all across the country, mostly non-union. These were workers in a host of different industries, quick serve restaurants and entertainment and retail and a host of other places that are not tied together by anything other than we need to make more money. We need more of this economic pie. And that has led to a number of states slowly moving up. Nobody's there yet to $15 an hour as the minimum wage in that state. It has led Joe Biden to put forward $15 federal minimum wage. 
That is a massive movement that has benefited all workers in the United States, that will continue to benefit workers in the United States. And for anyone who argues that the minimum wage decreases jobs, if you increase the minimum wage, it decreases jobs, there's absolutely no proof of that. And so that, to me, is a great example of workers uniting a common cause for something outside of the union movement, but I would still call it part of that counterbalancing union force. Powerful and very, very interesting. So as somebody who's studied the independent workforce for years, formed a company in the independent workforce, and is you know currently part of a company that's focusing on how to help talent succeed, I think about your concept of the need for an individual safety net and the ideas that workers need to embrace in order to prepare themselves for the future. There's a part of this that has to do with government and society and advocacy. And I'm a huge fan of allowing people to go out there and do all the things you just said. And then there's a part of this which each of us individually as owners of our own career need to recognize and prepare for. And also need to look on the open market for the most cost-effective and efficient way to, to get it done. Talk about your observations, advice, or, or just your theory there. So I think I view the world of safety nets in three different ways. There is the government safety net, social security, unemployment, workers' comp. There is the company safety net, the 401k, the training and development they give, the healthcare matches. There is the individual safety net, your personal savings, whatever personal health plans you have, insurance and things like that. I think it is folly for any individual to rely on the government safety net or the company safety net. It's just folly. Now, it, do I have views as to what companies and the government should do? I do. But if I'm sitting here as an individual, nobody owns your security, nobody owns your retirement, your healthcare, your training, your development, the marketing of your skills more than you do. The freelancer knows that, right? Because the freelancer has no access to the company safety net because they don't work for a company and has limited access to the government safety net. Very limited, right? They don't get unemployment insurance. They don't get workers comp. They don't do a host of things. And so as a freelancer, they've come to understand it. And this is the permeation of that trend through all the entire workforce. Look, we've seen trends in the company safety net and data would tell us that the company safety net is going down. We see big trends like the movement from a defined benefit pension plan to a defined contribution plan to a 401k with a match to less and less 401k. 401k match was the first thing companies eliminated in the beginning of the pandemic crisis. As they were cutting costs, all 401k matches are suspended because they can be turned off like that, right? And companies are pushing more and more of the health costs onto workers. Companies are doing less and less training per worker. And so the data on the company safety net is clear. It is going down. Now, there are obviously some examples of companies stepping up and doing great things, and I think that's wonderful. But relying on that? Super silly. Just don't, don't rely on it. If you have it, that's great. If you work for a company that does this well, great. But relying on it? Don't. The government safety net... Might it evolve? Are there interesting conversations going on about very interesting things to be done? Sure. But again, the data would tell us that on an inflation-adjusted basis, the government safety net is providing less to people than it ever has, and it is closer to insolvency than it's ever been. There have to be changes to the government safety net at some point. I have been mind-blown as to how we are continuing to just print money at the federal level without inflation picking up, but 
at some point that breaks. You know, God willing, it doesn't break soon and we can get through this pandemic and get our finances in order. But at some point, it doesn't work. And so relying on the government safety net, again, do I hope it's there? Do I hope it provides for? Of course. Would I encourage anybody to rely on it? No. So those are the things that are clear trends around the pullbacks of those safety nets, the push onto the worker. And if the worker doesn't embrace it, they don't do so at their risk. So Jeff, in your career, just to shift gears, but I think it will link back, you have been an entrepreneur and founder. You've also worked very closely with the venture-backed capital system. You know, So you've had investors look at your businesses, you've had successful exits, and you've probably learned a lot from that journey about what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur and what you believe investors will be thinking about as exciting and interesting areas for future investment. What do you see from that that lens when you think about the future of work? Wow. What do I see? I see that uh, it's very fortunate to be a white male. I was talking to a friend of mine, an uh, African-American woman, and I kind of walked her through you know, some things that I'm thinking about, and I talked to some VCs and literally just some things about my next potential company. And some VCs were like, great, here, I'll give you X number of dollars right now. And I was telling her this you know, very insensitively because she's a struggling entrepreneur and she's been trying to raise money for her company for years. I'm actually an investor in her company. And she just kind of looked at me and she's like, it must be nice. I was like, what? She's like, to be a rich white man? I was like, oh, yeah. No, well, first of all, it is. It, it's, it's very nice. Um, and you know, sometimes you forget how lucky you are to be in that circumstance where people will back me. I could go in, not with any idea. I mean, I want to be ridiculous. But there's also the notion that, you know, I have been successful in this before. And so, you know, let's not pretend that that's not, those aren't variables either. Uh, so that, you know, I would say as I think about my career, it has been defined by luck, by a very fortunate series of circumstances, by failure having had my first startup fail miserably and, and basically bankrupt me. And so it is also defined by perseverance and having to continue to keep going even though you've been knocked down. Now, again, I'm super fortunate that I've had a lot of support networks and blah, 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 blah. But those were not really your question. Your question was around VCs and kind of what do they look for? Look, in my mind, they are looking for people that are solving big problems. Don't go in with a small market, a small problem. This goes back to our original statement around, I was looking at the independent workforce as a multi-trillion dollar problem. So find a big problem. Find a team of people that are capable of executing on that. Right? If you go into a VC and say, hey, we're a bunch of business people and we're going to build a software platform, and they look at you going, who's going to build it? It's not a good start to a meeting. And being a technical founder has a huge amount of benefit. And so having industry expertise is a huge amount of benefit. Having the relationships is a huge amount of benefit. There's a reason VCs like this pattern recognition, repeating, being able to walk in with a very clear ROI pitch with a team that can execute upon something in a very big market. Those to me are the three most important things, but I would put them in the order of team first. You know, I did get the opportunity to spend part of my career as a venture capitalist before I started some companies. And one of the things that I would always do, Asi, is at some point in the meeting is I would hold up their business plan and say, 
The only thing I know for 100% certainty is it ain't going down like this. This business plan is wrong. Now, I don't know where it's wrong. I don't know how it's wrong. I don't know how to fix it, but I'm 100% sure it's wrong. And all I can do if I'm going to write you a check is make a bet that you're going to figure out where it's wrong and that you're going to adapt. You're going to listen to the market. You're going to listen to your team. You're going to listen to your advisors. You're going to listen to your customers. You're going to listen to competitors. And you're going to adapt and figure out how to make it work because the companies that don't adapt fail. So at the end of the day, that investor is looking at that team and their adaptability if they're going after a big market and they have a solution that delivers clear value to a customer base. So you have built around you a network of very interesting individuals. Many of them actually wrote essays for your book. And one of them, of course, was our mutual good friend, Gene. And I think he's angling for that cash prize, by the way. I've been hearing that there is a digital nomad visa for Bermuda. And maybe, you know, that could be an interesting place to end up in 2040 on the beach, mm -hmm. you know, for Gene when he's um, finished with this wonderful journey that he has already had for, you know, multiple decades with MBO. But as you've built this group of people around you, do you believe that the industry and the players are having the right conversations to grow the sector as a whole. What could we be doing to convene that next level of regulatory change, societal change, or, you know, taxonomy change? We talked about a very technical but very important opportunity. Do you see that there's new opportunities to gather? That is a great question. As I ponder that, let me just say that I don't know that there is anybody that I have such affection for, not just in the space and not just professionally, but just in my life than Gene Zeno. I mean, I see when we first started Work Market, you know, one of the things that they never tell you as you're starting a company, and Work Market was not my first, so I certainly knew this, is that nobody really takes your call. You know, when I was starting my career at JP Morgan, I could pick up the phone and say, Hey, it's Jeff Wald, I'm calling from JP Morgan. People say, Oh, oh, JP Morgan, well, I should talk with you. When I pick up the phone and say, hi, I'm Jeff Wall. I'm calling from Work Market. They're like, what? Who are you? I don't, I don't have time for this. And they hang up. That actually happens. They hang up on you. And when I had the opportunity to have a conversation with Gene, he was so kind. He was so giving and thoughtful. I mean, he is a legend in the space. And who the heck were we? We were a bunch of you know, people that knew nothing. We didn't have a lot of experience in the space. Some. but And he took the time and he was great. And I will forever be grateful because he had no reason to extend his hand down to help lift us up. And he did. And it just talks about how wonderful a person he is. So uh, are there other ways to convene and gather other means to do this? I will tell you, I am not hopeful on that front. I have seen countless advocacy groups from the Freelancers Union to Ipsy that have done great work, but I don't know have gotten the kind of traction that they hoped for. I have seen countless conferences that we all get a chance to kind of go and, and speak at. And I love seeing all the people there, many of whom did contribute to my book, as, as you mentioned, many of whom I asked but said no. <laughs> and so I love all those people. And, you know, one of the thousand and one downsides of the pandemic is I haven't got a chance to see them at the SIA conference, at, at the CWS stuff. I mean, you know, you don't get a chance to, to see all these wonderful people. But am I hopeful? that regulatory change can come from them? No, I'm just not. 
Am I hopeful that a taxonomy can come from this? No. You know, I remember a conversation I had with the team at ADP. Now, ADP bought work market. ADP is an amazing company. They are massively underappreciated for what they are. People still think about them as a payroll company. They're the world's largest HCM software company. And they should be put in the same category as the Workdays and the Salesforces and everybody else of the world. Like they're an incredible, incredible business. Do they move still a little too slow on some stuff? Absolutely. And as I was kind of thinking about how we took the work market tech within ADP, because it's doing great within ADP as a bolt-on to ADP helps you manage your full-time employees, work market helps you manage your independent employees. It's great. And we're killing it like that. And that's wonderful. But... Is there a bigger opportunity set to take that profiling structure and to start permeating and creating really a competitor to LinkedIn, quite frankly, because LinkedIn is user-generated content. It is unverified. And so do I think that there is a huge, huge, huge opportunity to take the data that is resident within the HCM system and to have a universal ID such that, and that's just your social security number, that when I worked at JP Morgan or I worked at Barrington Capital Group or I worked at Glenrock and it's taking the data and it's confirming with their systems that I did work there for that period, maybe confirming the types of stuff that I did. Now I've got a real look at what I'm doing. And if I can do that, and because I'm the one creating that universal profile, I'm doing it within a taxonomy, that's amazing. But there are so few companies that can do that. Those are the kinds of things that I think about as I think about my next step is how do I build something like that because there is there is a great play out there. LinkedIn's an amazing piece of software, but it's become a cesspool. And I actually hate logging into it now because, you know, you get like 80 emails a day from people saying, hey, do you want sales leads? Do you want these? I'm like, no, no, I don't. So anyway, that, that was my rant. You know what? I actually think you're really onto something and I'll share with you what was running through my mind. Years ago, I remember... Uh, chatting with somebody who was trying to explain to me what Bitcoin was. And he said, hang on, it's not about Bitcoin. I want to explain to you what blockchain is. And he gave me, I I use the explanation all the time because I was so impressed by it. He said, basically, there's a farmer in India who wants to sell a cow to you sitting where you are in the world. And there is now an unbreakable digital footprint and contract that allows you to do that in a borderless way, frictionlessly, and with complete legal authority that that is a valid transaction. You've left the banks out, you've left the lawyers out, but there's a piece of software that is quote unquote unbreakable, right? And it's on a chain. So you can look at the, the provenance and the origin of that interaction or that transaction. And that's what I started thinking about as you were speaking, because essentially what you're saying lives on the block. It's the idea that every time you perform a project, you get a job and it has a certain set of skills attached. Somebody is verifying that you, in fact, did that work. And that work has now become a part of your ledger, right? It's become a part of your universal ledger that enables you to take it with you wherever you go in a verifiable way. And to me, what you're describing, technology is going to be the key in the heart of of how that's successful, but also adoption, right? Because it's all about which ledger or which technology we pick to build this kind of a system on. 
that essentially is disruptive to the current way that data is organized, that people catalog things that they've done. I mean, we're still in the world of the resume. You know? We're still in the world of parsing the resume. So this is, this is really future thinking to be looking at this this way. And I'm, I'm anxious to follow your journey. I mean, I am fascinated to see where you go with this. And I think that, you know, companies like MBO that deal with a significant portion of a certain kind of worker certainly isn't the entire independent workforce, but it's it's a part of it that's very interesting. I know we'd love to, to follow your journey and, and to be involved in where you take this. I will always, always, always do anything that MBO asks. Look, I will say this, the compliance piece, as we talked about earlier, where regulation is to me the biggest issue, solving the company's compliance issues is the best way to do that. And nobody does that better than you guys. I mean, just, there's just nobody does that better. And so uh, because of how powerful you are and the solution you have, how powerful the solution is, and because of Gene, I will always, always, always be anywhere MBO asks me. I want to thank you for just, this was rich. This was very, very thought provoking. As always, just enjoy uh, chatting with you and, 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 you know, exchanging ideas. And I hope this isn't the last time that we speak on MBO's podcast. I have a feeling you'll be back to say more. Anytime you want me back, I'll be here. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. That was Jeff Wald, founder of Work Market, author of The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. For more of MBO's insights on the future of work, and how to make the most of the independent economy today, visit mbopartners.com or find another episode of State of Independence wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening.